And it may, be, it may have been something that they just hadn't considered before. And they were really looking for support in, in the how. They kind of knew the what, but they really didn't have a handle on the how. You know, and I think that's probably one of the complaints. Uh, one article compared it to the Denny's comment card. The most happiest customers and the most angriest customers tend to fill those restaurant cards out. And it seems to be that we have something similar maybe in higher education with our course evals. Yeah, I think that's a great point um, when we start to discuss things like non-response bias. When um, only the happiest or angriest of students respond, then are the results really generalizable to the actual experience of all students in the classroom? Simply encouraging can can help make the results more generalizable and more effective than a the so-called Denny's comment card, for sure. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Course evaluations or student evaluations of teaching are far and away the most common method of evaluating teaching in colleges today. And this is because they're relatively easy to create, they're often free to host, they're quick to analyze, and they promise confidentiality and anonymity for the student respondent. They're used for course improvement, fidelity studies within and across programs, and tenure review. However, they're often plagued by low response rates and non-response bias. For example, the average paper course evaluation can expect a 60 to 70% response rate, while the average online course evaluation can expect about a 50 to 60% response rate. In our college, here at ASU, we typically receive a 45 to 50% response rate, meaning about half of all of our students in courses don't complete our 11-item survey. Because the data generated from the course evaluations is used in such high-stakes ways, it's important to discuss what can be done to increase student response rates in order to assure that they're accurately generalizable to the experience of the majority of students in the course. Simple reminders by faculty and explanations of how they intend to use the data can improve response rates by almost 10 percentage points, while offering incentives such as extra points for participating or a cheat sheet if the majority of the the class participates can increase response rates by over 20 percentage points. While these strategies can be effective, it's important we continue to ask ourselves why students don't participate in evaluations even after all this effort. Another important issue to discuss about course evaluations are the fact that they're short surveys attempting to capture input on the entirety of teaching in a course in 8 to 10 simplified items. They're often structured this way in order to boost response rates and allow for quicker, more digestible data analysis. Most colleges lack the resources to conduct longer, in-depth follow-up studies and surveys with open-ended items. With that being said, the data created from these shorter surveys are capable of producing actionable information when used as part of a systematic program course review. For example, the majority of faculty report course evaluations assisting course improvement, and this is even more apparent when combined with pedagogical strategies tailored to the survey item in need of refinement. Quality reflection can also assure that course evaluations are translated into course improvement. The impact of support from supervisors, colleagues, and even students in a course can assure faculty make the most of their feedback. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Stephen Crawford from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me in this conversation on course evaluation is... Aaron Kraft. Celia Katroitiwa. Jeanette Senecal. 
And joining us today is special guest... Valerie Simmons. So Valerie, quickly tell us, what do you do for uh, academic innovation? So I'm our management information analyst. And so here at Academic Innovation, I oversee course evaluations. Um, I also oversee academic assessment planning and reporting. Um, But really specific to our conversation today, I oversee course evaluations. So I make sure that the um, evaluations get opened and closed on time. I send out the email reminders to students. um, And then I help faculty retrieve their course evaluations for their annual review. So as we get started today, um, course evaluation is something that, you know, I don't think a lot of instructional designers work with. And so this is one of the things that I think it's a very important topic because it can have an impact on future courses. So let me start by asking, um, what are some of the benefits and drawbacks that we see to course evaluations? That's a great question. So there are several benefits to online course evaluations in particular. They provide students with the opportunity to give their feedback to their course instructors. It provides them with the opportunity to have a voice in their course and make sure that the course is improved upon each semester um, for future students. It also gives data to the teacher, to the faculty member, and to the program to assess whether or not the course has been effective in meeting its goals and Um, how to improve the course overall, and then assists with tenure and review. Being online, it helps with a quick analysis. It also can be tailored to the interests of an individual department or college. It can show change over time um, in the longitudinal data. Um, So if you attempt a new strategy or if a program has a new um, way of doing something, it can provide data to show if there was an impact in that change. And it can also be incorporated into systematic program review, as I mentioned previously. And so programs can use that in assessment planning and reporting and just programmatic review in general. Some of the drawbacks, as I mentioned previously, that it's difficult to measure teaching effectiveness no matter how you do it. And trying to measure that in eight to 10 simple items can be really difficult. Oftentimes, students will use words like professional or organized in ways that are different than faculty members would. It can also, the results can be skewed by the difficulty of the course that the student is completing. If a topic is difficult to get through, we find that some course evaluations can be a little bit lower than other more remedial topics. And then low student response rate can lead to non-response bias, where the results aren't actually reflective of the majority of the students in the course, simply because they are not enough um, responded to be generalizable. So let me ask the rest of the team, have you ever worked with a faculty member where they've shared the results of a, of a course evaluation with you? I probably shouldn't say this, but I did happen to see course survey results one time. I was speaking with a supervisor of mine at a previous position, and he was showing me some of the issues that the instructor was having previously, and uh, I was giving a sneak peek at what some of the students were saying. So I did one time see that information. So what did you see? I mean, was it important? Was it useful? I think it was. You know what? It did help me to pinpoint areas that I could improve within my capacity for the online class. I think the issue was the instructor wasn't a poor instructor by any means. In fact, I think they were tenured, which isn't mutually exclusive. But (laughs) in this case, they were actually a good instructor as well. But I don't think they were comfortable online. And so... Because there was sort of a lack of outreach to the instructional designers, we became a little proactive in finding out what was going on. And I was able to find out that uh, there's just a certain thing, certain t- uh, tweaks that could have been made in the online course that I think would help to alleviate some of the student, how should we say, 
anxiety. And obviously, the, the, what I was reading from the students' comments was just their anxiety about not knowing, for example, test dates and not getting quick feedback. So I slide that into the next conversation with the instructor and I, you know, sort of help to make sure that those elements are in the course next time it rolls out. And uh, I think I never got to see if that improved things, but I get a feeling it didn't hurt. Yeah, I've had a couple of conversations individually with faculty over the years where perhaps they've received a comment from an individual student in an evaluation where they felt it translated to a specific action item and they could see that there was a path forward to making an improvement and they were they were motivated. And it may, be, it may have been something that they just hadn't considered before and they were really looking for support in, in the how. They kind of knew the what, but they really didn't have a handle on the how. You know, and I think that's probably one of the complaints uh, one article compared it to the Denny's comment card. The most happiest customers and the most angriest customers tend to fill those restaurant cards out. And it seems to be that we have something similar maybe in higher education with our course evals. Yeah, I think that's a great point um, when we start to discuss things like non-response bias. When um, only the happiest or angriest of students respond, then it, are the results really generalizable to the actual experience of all students in the classroom, um, which is where I think offering things like incentives can come into play. Um, simply having a faculty member remind students that they need to complete the course evaluations can result in about a 10 percentage point increase in the number of students who respond. So um, simply encouraging can, can help make the results more generalizable and more effective than a, the so-called Denny's comment card, for sure. I got some comments for Denny's. <laughs> Sometimes that food is pretty bland, but I never actually filled out a card. But there is something to be said for that. You know, you're going to get the extremes and anybody who's worked in a thankless profession, which I'm sure we all have at one point or another, if not now, um, you're going to know that if you don't hear anything, sometimes that means it's all good, which doesn't really help in this situation, but nonetheless. I think it's also important when we're looking at these, you know, often point five point Likert scale items that we're not just looking at the average, the mean score on these items, because in some cases it's two students who have responded or five students who have responded or even 20 out of 100 students have responded. And it's really important to start looking at the spread of the scores as opposed to the mean and the number of students who've responded and what weight that carries. So I think that's a great, a great point. The mean is the average of the and scores? The overall. Mm -hmm. Like so, if it's a Likert, mm -hmm. you have four people give fours. Mm -hmm. Then the average would be a four. The average is four. Okay. Mm -hmm. The yep. mean is four. Yes. Okay. The average and mean would be the same thing. But if you look at the spread, so if I gave a two threes, then the average would be a three. But if I gave a one and a five, the average would be a three. And that's very different than if you have two students who give you a three out of five, as opposed to a student who gave you a one and a student who gave you a five. That's a very different story when you're looking at the data, which is why we recommend looking at the spread of the scores as opposed to just the mean scores. And I know that the questions are boiled down to, as you said, just a, a few, eight mm -hmm. to 10. I think it's in our case, it's 11 for our college. You know, and I know that some institutions have started off with far more than that. And, and they discovered that, you know, some questions predicted the answers of others. So they were able to get rid of a bunch of them because they were redundant, essentially. And obviously, a long survey is going to be ignored. The short survey is going to get answered. I know as an instructor that the feedback I get from the open-ended questions are far more valuable than I get from the, the Likert scale. I mean, the Likert just, 
it 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 just gives you that short little here's a bunch of numbers and and I, you know I don't think I've ever thought about the spread as much before. I just tend to look at the numbers going, oh yeah, I'm I'm doing relatively well and but never really looked at the numbers that closely. But those open-ended questions when students provide feedback, that's some of the stuff that I found most valuable because it's provided me an opportunity to go, okay, this is how I can improve the course. You know, they found these directions were confusing and then I can go, okay, well, why was that so? And sometimes there may have been a design flaw that I could have done something different to make things more clear. Sometimes, you know, I, I, other stats, for example, they, you know, instructions weren't clear. I'm like, well, I explained it in a video and I looked at my video stats and saw that two people out of 20 watched the video in the class. What more can I do? I think that's a great point as well. When we're looking at the open-ended comments from students, um, it's really important to look at um, the way that they're phrasing things. Um, for example, uh, we find in the research that the word professional is often um, understood by students and faculty in very different ways. And then oftentimes in these programs, students are learning how to become professional and how to become professionals. And to ask them to gauge the professionalism of a faculty member um, is a really difficult place to put them in. Um, and so when you're asking them for open-ended comments around things like that, or even organized, many of these students are learning how to be organized themselves and how to organize a schedule. And so to ask them to weigh in on a professional, you know, faculty member's ability to organize a syllabus, if it may be their very first course in college period, um, is difficult. And so um, we really recommend, you know, making sure that as you're reading the open-ended comments, you're seeing how many students are responding and understanding that they may be interpreting some of the items in different ways than you may have intended in the survey. Let me ask about gender bias real fast. I've, I know that's popped up a couple of times. Absolutely. Um, so there is something called the Dr. Fox or Mr. Fox effect, where the physical attributes of a faculty member can result in a slightly higher course evaluation. Students may be more likely to rate generically overall better than some other courses. But on the whole, it's a it's a pretty, you know, it happens, but it's not on a regular basis. Are there any explanations? So going back to you um, talking about some of those, the verbiage that's used in the questions themselves, are there, I haven't seen any time recently uh, <laughs> an evaluation for one of the courses here, but are, do, are there any explanation points for, you know, clarifications or anything for the student to better understand those questions? And would it help for, you know, let's say those 100 level courses that freshmen are taking to have maybe a different evaluation that kind of still asks those same questions, but maybe in a more clarified way? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult trade-off that you come into. If we're explaining what we mean by a word to someone, then we're really getting our opinion of their opinion. Um, we're defining something for them and we mm -hmm. really want to know their opinion based on their understanding. Mm -hmm. But that comes at the cost of clarity, perhaps, and generalizability. And then, you know, creating a different survey for a lower level course then means that we can't compare those courses to anything else but themselves and we lose some longitudinal data. So it's really a trade-off at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The longer a survey item is, the less likely it is to be answered. So the more in-depth and the more clarifiers you give, the longer the item becomes and the less likely it is to be answered. So we really try when we're crafting surveys to do it in a way that's clear and concise and tries to get it the meat of what we're really needing to know, not what we're wanting to know, but needing to know. And these questions are all approved by the faculty before they go live. So this is written, 
you know, with the approval of the faculty. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think here the faculty assembly had a special committee who wrote them, and then you know, and it's interesting as you talk about the longitudinal side, they've not they've chosen not to revise them in recent years, and so you can go back semester to semester and see how a particular faculty member performed based off of those numbers. And, you know, in course to course as well, how, how, how's a course change? That way, if, if you, you, can, you reduce some variable changes, so you can go, okay, we, we did this modification to the course and the same person was teaching it, so we reduced a couple of things. But sometimes just the group of students, I mean, I, I think, you know, we talk a lot of times about the different generations of students and how one group of students reacts to something and interprets things one way where maybe five to ten years later that a, the new group of students interprets it completely differently. And that can have an interesting impact, I suspect. Absolutely. You know, one of the items in our course evaluation survey is the instructor encourages reciprocity and cooperation among students. And I see that item and I think even when I was in college, the idea of collaboration, project-based learning, sort of teamwork was not at the forefront. And that was just 10 years ago. And so the fact that this is now something that we're measuring that we find important is very interesting over time from one generation to another of college students, um, how items can change and the importance can be changed over time as well. So, And how do you think students treat the hard courses, those courses that are just difficult, not because of the faculty member, because of the content and the placement in the curriculum? Yeah, I mean, those courses often can become um, a little less lower rated overall. It's something that we know in the research comes up. But again, the more students who respond to the survey, the more we can generalize about the experience and deduce, is it because of the difficulty of the course and the topic, or is it because the professor didn't clarify instructions, or is it because there was just this really weird example one week that they tried to build off for several weeks and it just never you know, translated well. At the end of the day, the higher the student response rate, the more we can deduce from that information. I completely respect and acknowledge the benefits and the importance of course evaluations, but kind of reflecting back as a student primarily, I've always thought of it kind of as a, an awkwardly objective process to something that feels so very subjective. And and as an instructor, it's on the other side too. Teaching and learning can be so varied and so diverse that this process of evaluation has always felt a little weird to me. Mm-hmm. I think you touch on two really good points. The fact that teaching is so all-encompassing. One thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. You can have poor motivation because of bad classroom management, or you can have bad motivation because of poor planning and delivery. There are so many things that affect each other, and to try and measure that in such a short survey with really short, concise items is difficult. And it can be really confusing to students because what they think is really important to them in a course may not even come up on a survey that they never asked to be a part of. And so I think that's a really great point. And I think it gets to a question that we really need to keep asking ourselves, which is why is it that even after we offer reminders and incentives, do almost half of our students not respond to these surveys? It may be that they're just done with the course and they're ready to be done and move on and check it off their list and never think about it again. They may think that the faculty member doesn't use the data anyway, so what's the point in giving them my time? They may have had a bad experience and they just want to move on. But really investing ourselves in why is it that they're not 
completing these. And what we can do as faculty and staff to encourage that completion is a really great question that I think we need to keep coming back to. Do you see a correlation or have you heard of any correlations between general studies courses versus major courses that have to be taken and the response rate? I haven't seen anything in our college, but I haven't dug into the data enough to know. Honestly, I just I haven't um, yeah. looked at it enough to know one way or the other. But I will say that in our college, if there are fewer than four students enrolled in the course, we don't release their data. We still ask mm. them to evaluate the course, but we don't release that data to the faculty member because then it's no longer anonymous um, oh. for the student. You could deduce who had answered some of the questions based on their open-ended responses. So in that case, I would say that some of the upper-level courses, fewer faculty may get their results back mm -hmm. just because enrollment tends to be lower in the upper level courses. But as far as response rates, I really can't speak to. Are the students made aware of that? That the faculty will not see their responses when they do their surveys? In the email that we send out asking for their participation, we let them know that if there um, is low enrollment in the course, that we don't release their results in order to maintain their confidentiality and faculty know that as well. Mm -hmm. So on increasing participation, you know, I think back to the dark ages when I was an undergraduate student and I sat in a classroom and they handed out paper-based evals. You know, usually it was the last 10 minutes of the class, the faculty member would hand out the paper, you would, and then would usually have a student collect them all and take them to the office as they would leave the room and that's the end of the class. And so we'd quickly fill out our papers and, and, and go from there. And I just, you know, I suspect that the response rate was pretty high back then you know, because you had that captive audience and you're filling out that paper and that was your one shot to do it. Now we do everything online, which is great for the student because now there's no handwriting analysis trying to figure out who said what. And it's electronic, it's quickly, you know, you don't have to do any, you know, any transcripts or anything like that. But the response, response rate has gone down. I'm thinking in a face-to-face -face class, that approach of saying, you know what, we're going to take the last 10 minutes of class and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do your course evals right here, right now, and I'm going to walk out of the classroom and let you guys do that. I think that would probably be a great approach to increasing uh, a response rate for a face-to-face -face course. What are some other things we can do and what kind of incentives can we offer? So... You know, back when course evaluations were done on paper, we saw about a 60 to 70 percent response rate. So even in the day when we had that captive audience and we were giving them time to complete it, there was still 30 percent of students who weren't completing the survey. And it could be written off that they just weren't attending class. Absolutely. They could have not been there. They could have decided not to do it. Any of the above. Today, with online surveys, we're expecting about a 50 to 60 percent response rate. Here in the college, we get about 45 to 50 percent on average. And so ways that we can improve response rates, simply having faculty remind students that they uh, the course evaluations are available and that they would enjoy and appreciate their their feedback. That can make a big difference. Having faculty explain how they use the data to improve the course, that can improve um, response rates by about 10 percentage points. And then offering incentives, like you mentioned, incentives are often extra credit points. So you may offer a one point or a one percentage point increase to their grade overall if they complete the um, survey. And then there are also these sort of collective percentage-based incentives where the faculty member might say, if 80% of you in the core, in the class complete the course evaluation, I'll let you use a note card or a cheat sheet on your final exam. 
or I'll let you drop your lowest weekly paper score, um, something like that. And that can actually make up to about 20 percentage point um, increase in response rate all the way up into like the 75% range. Okay. I was wondering about that because how can you give an extra credit for point or or even a even a drawing for a Starbucks gift card if you don't know who the stu- what students have submitted, mm-hmm. you know, who they are. But if you're hitting a percentage goal, that's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, with academic innovation, I oversee the course evaluations. And so if a faculty member really wanted to know their live data, like how many students have responded, what percentage, that's something that we could update them on um, before the close of the the survey before the end of the semester. So anything that we can do to help increase student response rate, we would love to do. I want to follow up that comment on the um, reminders. And one of the things that I've seen, maybe with mixed success on an anecdotal front, is not just to tell students that their feedback's valued, but to actually introduce the concept earlier in the semester, perhaps even with a brief survey that's purely for you know self-improvement measures, and to really talk up what changes may be included as a, as a result of that intermediary formative survey, and to continue that message throughout the course that, that their voice really is valued and has impact. And I don't, I don't know if there's any research that validates that model, but I have seen students respond to that kind of behavior. Yeah, absolutely. A major recommendation, you know, with any sort of evaluation is that it should be ongoing and iterative. And so you should be evaluating your teaching and making changes and then evaluating and making changes. And that's that's the, the ideal process for evaluation in general, which would be, you know, indicative of, of course evaluation as well. So even if it's not part of an official capacity, there's nothing stopping a faculty member from doing a quick poll sure. or, a, you know, even just talking to students and getting feedback. Yep. Um, I know that there's a popular model out there called Start, Stop, Continue. And so just asking students, what should I start doing? What should I stop doing? And what should I continue doing? And that in the research can be highly effective in making students feel like their voices are heard in the classroom and increasing motivation. It's a great tip. Um, to, you know, to try and uh, implement what they've learned. So the course has ended. The, the surveys are closed. We have the feedback. Now what? Great how, how, do, how do we use this data? How, how should I approach this? Great question. So as I mentioned previously, I think, you know, you're going to get the mean scores of your Liker items. I think going beyond just looking at the average scores and looking at the spread and the number of students who've responded is the first step because it's already generated for you and it's right there. And then reading through the open-ended comments um, to see if there's a theme or a trend in what students are saying about things that they liked or disliked, books that they enjoyed or didn't enjoy, topics that they wish would have been you know, more discussed in more depth. And then from there, research is really showing that when a faculty member has pedagogical strategies that are specifically tailored to the item on the survey at their hands, readily available, they're more easily able to implement those strategies and make changes to their courses in the future, which makes sense. If a faculty member doesn't have to spend time digging for a strategy to try and figure out what this you know, student might have meant by their comment and then find something to address it and then think about you know, implementing it and then trying to implement, if they have that strategy ready to go provided to them, then they're more likely to implement it. And so I think Colleges and, you know, programs in particular can 
be proactive in trying to find strategies that they can provide their faculty members um, that would align to different items on the survey. And I think for faculty in particular, reaching out for support and clarification can go a very long way. Supervisors are there to help. Program directors are there to help, as well as colleagues. If you have conflicting information and you're not really sure what a student might have meant by a comment that they made, ask a colleague to come into your classroom and observe it from the point of a student. They can then tell you where it seems like students might have gotten lost or where an example might have fallen flat. Or if we're an online course, have an instructional designer take a look at the course. Exactly, have an instructional designer take a look. The more eyes on on something, the better. And like I mentioned before, asking your students, just go to your students um, or talk to a previous student. You know, the more clarification and the more support that you can get, the better as far as implementing what you, the data that you've got. So I know when I see my evaluations, and unfortunately, I don't see them very often because my response rate tends to be so low. So I'm going to be trying to add in a couple more of these strategies, seeing if I can get more participation. But, you know, sometimes you look at it, and again, it's the angry students who struggled, who responded. It's sometimes very hard not to just immediately write it off and go, you've got to be kidding and and get frustrated. I mean, what do you advise for for that? We see that sometimes. I've been waiting for this question, by the way. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Guilty pleasure. <laughs> you know, really uh, thoughtful reflection over a period of days is really recommended. Research around reflection when it comes to, you know, feedback in particular, they recommend reading your feedback and then coming back to it after a couple of days and even investing the time to write about your knee-jerk reaction, how you feel about it, and then coming back to it in a few days, especially with an improvement mindset. You know, if you can come at this without being reactive, but taking a moment, stepping back and then coming back saying, what is it that I might be doing that are, that's making my students feel this way or making my class react this way can go a long way in making comments that may seem personally attacking much more useful in the grand scheme of course improvement. I've told faculty before, be human, feel the feelings, and then <laughs> and move then on. come back, yep. Yep, absolutely. You know, there are guided reflection forms online that you can find if you Google them, and they actually help you walk through the feelings that you're coming up against. Because at the end of the day, we're all human, and it is hard to get critical feedback that you know is going to be shared with your program director and your board, you know, for tenure review and perhaps colleagues. It is hard to see that critical feedback, but there are, are forms for guided reflection out there that can help you process what you're feeling and then come back to it with an improvement mindset ready to make changes. And I think the idea of sharing it with others, instructional designers, colleagues, and discussing it with others, what does this mean? How can I improve? Getting those outside ideas, I think that's a really nice approach to things. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, everyone has received negative reviews. Like every faculty member, every one of your colleagues Mm -hmm. has experienced something critical um, or negative. Um, And so just talking to another colleague about it can make you feel validated and help you process through some of those human emotions and those reactions. That's got to be tough. I remember in my graduate program, I was taking a class on e-learning and building online courses and all the essential components. And the instructor, she had, she's Sri Lankan. And I, she just came at this with a completely different angle than a lot of us were used to. And I found it refreshing, but I know a lot of my peers thought it was very frustrating. 
But one of the assignments she had us do was to get onto a web conferencing software and we did a role playing activity where we had three people on the side of Mexico and three people on the side of Texas. One was a politician, one was a farmer, and I can't remember the third role. So you had a, a Mexican farmer, an American farmer, and an American politician, a Mexican politician. And we we're supposed to somehow figure out the whole water issue because, you know, the water wars are coming up, right? You hear about this. And nobody in the class, not, I won't say nobody, but um, a lot of people in the class were complaining that, like, I don't understand what this has to do with e-learning. But I thought it was brilliant because she's having us solve problems through using web conferencing tools, which is, which is something that you're going to have to do if you are building an online course or it's something that you might, that might come up eventually. And so I really appreciated the opportunity to, to try to utilize the, this platform and solve this problem. And I thought it was, you know, really cool. So I know that some of the, my peers complain about that on the, re, on the survey, right? Whereas I thought, Hey, uh, that was a really great activity. So I guess I don't, I, you know, I don't know if what the particular point is I'm going towards here other than it just seems like a lot of it from the re respondents end is subjective. And so, you know, if, if you have a certain amount of students saying, well, I don't get that, or I didn't like this. When do you say as the instructor, oh, well, you just didn't get it, but this guy got it. Or maybe I'm the outlier because I'm seeing something that wasn't there. I don't know, but there are those variations, it seems. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, where I, you draw the lines? I would look at that from the instructional design standpoint and say, okay, maybe they reacted to it negatively or positively, but does it matter if they achieved the objective? Mm -hmm. If they got to Brilliant. the end goal yes. that the instructor set for that learning experience, does it matter? Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah. And I also think that perhaps the way that she delivered the instructions lost their students' investment in the activity. And so perhaps there's something about her planning and delivery that could be adjusted in, you know, over her online course in order to ensure that students are being invested in the activity overall. But as Jeanette said, wow. if, if they're achieving their learning objective, then does it really matter? That's a great point. Perhaps had she explained, then I'm just assuming why she was doing it. She never actually explicitly mm -hmm. said it, but to me it seemed obvious. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe it's just my, you know, uh, my own subjective reality. Mm -hmm. But perhaps if she would to, were to explain, oh, I'm having you problem solve using virtual mm -hmm. means, maybe that would have made more sense. We were adult learners and might help us to understand why mm -hmm. we're doing these activities. Absolutely. Right? You know, any student, whether it's an adult um, or K-12 student, the motivation or their experience in the course is directly tied to the motivation to implement what they've learned. And so if you're not investing your learners in the course and the objectives, then their experience in the course is going to be negative and they're going to be less motivated to apply what they've learned. So delivery can be a huge component of investment for sure. But, you know, at the end, there's also something to be said about if you have feedback from four students, how much of that can be generalizable to a course with maybe 20 students. Maybe the majority thought everything was fine and you only heard from the four who were really upset or were lagging behind or um, had a personal conflict. And so that is something that you have to weigh, which is why I come back to looking at this range of the data points instead of just the averages so that you can see, was my data really polarizing? Was it that some students loved it and some students hated it? Or did the majority of my students think, this was okay. And then you can decide if it's worth acting upon or not. Because if you've lost half of the students and half of them get it, perhaps a change does need to be, you know, made. Are there clues when a student is just, or when you feel like maybe a student's just reacting out of anger, like, oh, this instructor offended me one time, or I felt it was really unfair, so I'm just going to let him have it on the, 
So, and I'm guilty as an undergraduate of many, <laughs> many years ago of, of venting my frustrations. Of course you are. <laughs> and so... Uh, to be fair, I think we probably all have had mm-hmm. that one faculty member we did that for because we were mad right. enough. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. So how on, on the other side, when you don't see the face, you don't see the, any of the interactions, all you're doing, all you're seeing is what the student wrote. How do you determine if that's the impetus for what they wrote? Yeah, I mean, regardless, what they've written is is important to understand and to take into account. So even if it was a personal dispute that led to this negative review, at the end of the day, your role as, as a teacher and an instructor was impacted by this and changes need to be made moving forward. So it has so, to be validated yeah. at some level. You know, yeah. I would say from the administrator's point of view, if I see a student has rated on a one to five scale uh, uh a student has rated them all ones, all just horrible. And then in the written comments provided some feedback, that's going to tell me something. If they don't provide feedback, it means that they were just lazy and hit a bunch of ones and said, I'm done with them. And therefore, I think in my mind, I'm going to ignore that fact. I think if I see a bunch of ones and they're providing some angry, unfocused feedback that is just all about the anger, I'm going to dismiss those ones as well. But if they provide a bunch of ones and there's something constructive and thoughtful in that written feedback, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I just curve it and like get rid of some of those low ones or... <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wish that we could, uh, you know, make everything... Yeah. It'd be great I if just... we could just deduce all of the data into like actionable bullet points for each faculty member, but... That's just not a capability uh, that we have. They answered one. These are the things you need to work on. <laughs> but <laughs> Look at some level, you personality gotta... survey, yeah. Oh, yeah. They... <laughs> you got to shrug it off, though, at some point, mm-hmm. I imagine. Or do you? I mean, I think, like Stephen was saying, it depends on the level of personal, I mm. think, attack. Like, if it's something that they're very angry about relating to the course and you can make a change from it, then absolutely, I think it needs to be validated and you need to consider it, at the very least, reflect upon it. But if it's something that's just personally attacking you as an individual, then, you know, it's either something that you just have to shrug off and move on or it becomes a personnel issue where maybe you need coaching on interprofessional relationships and, you know, personal space and how to be a professional colleague. I would think think that there would also be some sort of pattern seen, um, especially if they're faculty who teach multiple courses. Mm -hmm. Maybe those same low scores are happening in other courses that they teach or even across semesters. Mm -hmm. Then they should be able to say, oh, maybe this is something I need to work on. It's not just one angry student. And, and from a program director standpoint, you might even see that one cohort that has that either high score or low score go through the program That's and hit the range of courses from semester to semester. So let's go ahead and wrap things up here. I want to start by thanking Aaron, Celia, and Jeanette for joining us today for this conversation on course evaluations. And Valerie, we cannot thank you enough for joining us. I think you've given us some great things to think about, you know, when we consider we need to get our response rates as high as we can. So for those of you listening at the end of the semester, this is your chance. Put that call out, get those students to submit those course evals so you can get more feedback and explain to them how important it is to you and how you'll use that. And also once the semester ends, 
look at that feedback, reflect on it, talk to colleagues, talk to instructional designers, and let's see what action items we can find from there. Once again, I want to thank Ricardo Leon for evaluating our process during uh, this podcast and ensuring that we have a quality product. I want to thank you for your editing services and production services, and thank you very much. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as in instruction by design, underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. On a scale from one to five, how professional was this podcast? Um, it was like a 4.5. It was fantastic. And uh, I can't think of any more questions. <laughs> she puts the Val in evaluation. Valerie Simmons. Wow. 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 Wow.